Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The History of the World podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Welcome to the History of the World podcast magazine. Well, here we are again, happy as can be. All good pals and jolly good company. Welcome to another History of the World podcast magazine where we will be looking back over the history of this very podcast. Now, uh, as I mentioned last week, the History of the World podcast is now in its sixth year, which means we now have a good library of episodes from which to explore when we're waiting for new episodes to come out. So I'm hoping that this weekend coming will be uh, our last special episode uh, before we resume Volume 4. So we're, uh, we're presenting an episode on historiography, which is the study of history writing. And that will be hopefully coming this weekend. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to look back over History of the World podcast episodes of years gone by. And I've picked out a few interesting ones for you again this week. Our first dive back into history this week will be the episode from two years ago um, when the History of the World podcast was summarising the classical world. And we spoke briefly about the period around the fall of the Western Roman Empire. So the traditional Roman Empire and the end of that and what was going on surrounding that and what happened in the aftermath. So let's go back now and listen to that story. Central Europe was now dominated by the Huns, who had displaced many Germanic tribes and limited the opportunities for the Romans by compromising their political relationships. It would fall into the hands of the experienced Roman military general called Etius to do battle with the most formidable of all Hunnic leaders called Attila, and they met at the Battle of the Catalaunian Plains in the year 451. Many of the Germanic tribes in Europe picked their side during this battle, and the result meant that Attila's ambitions in Gaul were prevented. When Attila died a couple of years after, the power and the influence of the Huns gradually waned until their presence became insignificant, thereby closing a fascinating chapter in European history. 
From the Roman perspective, the damage to the Western Empire had been done. Warfare is exhausting. And with Western Rome in a precarious position thanks to the constant defence of its territory from Germans, that a war with the Huns was extremely unwelcome. Now Western Rome was just another political entity on the map of Europe, no more powerful than any other. By 476, the last official emperor of Western Rome, Romulus Augustus, was deposed and the rule of the Italian peninsula, which was all that was left of Western Rome, fell into foreign hands before the Ostrogoths stepped in and became the rulers of Italy by the end of the 5th century. One of the last remnants of Western Roman territory outside of the Italian peninsula was in northern France, but this very quickly fell to a Germanic peoples called the Franks. The Franks were made up of various tribes, but it was not until the rule of Clovis that the Franks were all united under one rule. Previously, some had supported Western Rome as residents within their territory. Now, they all had one land. This would be the beginnings of the Frankish Empire, which evolved and gave its name to the modern country of France. Significantly, Clovis embraced Christianity and was baptised as a Roman Catholic in Rennes Cathedral and the Frankish kingdom became a Christian realm. In the Ostrogothic kingdom of Italy, Roman culture did continue despite the rule of the new lands now being foreign. So, for example, a Roman senate still existed as most of the population of the Italian peninsula would identify as Roman citizens. Under the rule of Theodoric the Great, the Ostrogothic kingdom was at its greatest extent in control of the Italian peninsula and a large portion of land stretching eastwards to Pannonia. Theodoric actually imprisoned one of his well-learned Roman statesmen, a man called Boetius, who was suspected of plotting to overthrow him. While imprisoned, Boetius completed philosophical works that are considered to be among the last great Roman literary works, such as the Consolation of Philosophy, echoing back to the works of the great Athenian philosopher Plato and considerably influential over Western medieval society. Benedict of Nursia was a Christian abbot who also wrote highly influential works during a similar period in Italy that would advise monks living in the communities of abbots on their ways of life. The works have come to be known as the Rule of St Benedict and would have likely been a guidance at the many monastic communities created by Benedict during his lifetime in 6th century Italy. During Benedict's lifetime within the Ostrogothic kingdom, the Ostrogoths came under pressure from the Eastern Roman Empire, which had come under the rule of a long-serving emperor called Justinian. Justinian's early rule was turbulent, with mob violence against Justinian threatening the capital city of Constantinople in 532. 
The Nika riots are described as some of the most violent scenes that the city of Constantinople ever witnessed, with tens of thousands of people killed and much of the city burned to the ground. Justinian overcame the rebels within and then turned his attention outwards in order to strengthen his empire. Firstly, he would target the Vandals in North Africa and quickly extend his African influence from Egypt westwards into the lands of the Vandals centred on Carthage. The importance of Carthage is that it represents the part of North Africa that is the narrowest waterway to Europe, and particularly Sicily. So Justinian would plan an invasion of Ostrogothic Italy in order to bring traditional Roman lands back under the rule of a Roman emperor. But this time it would be the Eastern Roman Empire. It took Justinian a couple of decades to complete the conquest of Italy and ending Ostrogothic rule. Justinian's reign over the Eastern Roman Empire was considerable. After overcoming internal dissent, as described earlier, he published a legal code called Corpus Juris Civilis that was a version of Roman law. He also built an impressive building on the site of a church in Constantinople, which is still standing to this day. It is the Hagia Sophia and remains one of the most iconic and important buildings in the world today. Justinian would also have to navigate his empire through a very tense period of war and diplomacy with the Sasanian Empire to its east under the rule of its long-serving emperor Khosrow I. The great classical period city of Antioch was within Justinian's territory and was rocked by an earthquake. So Justinian attempted to rebuild the city before Khosrow sacked it and deported a large number of its population to Mesopotamia. Before Justinian's reign, raw silk had been imported into the Roman Empire from China, which started something called Byzantine silk production. But this was affected during the reign of Justinian. China was still fragmented, and despite a period of unity in northern China under the Northern Way, there was fragmentation once again. With the Sasanians in firm control of the direct silk road between the Roman territory and China, Justinian would look to exploit alternative longer routes via the Aksumites of East Africa by sea and by the steppe cultures in the north. However, the best move was when Justinian was able to acquire silkworm eggs from China, thanks to the approaches of two monks who had observed silk production in China and brought him the eggs to gain favour. The Eastern Roman Empire was now able to produce highly sought-after silk without the need to trade with the Chinese around the difficult Sasanian Empire. So going back even further in our story now, we go back to the episode that we were discussing three years ago in the History of the World podcast. And if you remember last week, we told the story of Hannibal crossing the Alps. But what exactly happened once he had done that? Well, 
Hannibal engaged in a number of battles within the Italian peninsula against the Romans and none of them were more famous than the Battle of Cannae. Now, the Battle of Cannae took place in 216 BCE and we're going to get right into the mix in this trip back in our history. Many historians muse over the circumstances surrounding the Punic Wars and its deep-rooted motivations, and the period of time leading up to the Battle of Cannae is no exception. Why did Hannibal choose not to attack Rome after its initial military victories? Why did he head south and set up a base camp near the village of Cannae? Also, why did the Romans hold back so long before launching an attack on Hannibal, who was within their own territory. The Roman military dictator Quintus Fabius Maximus Vericosus earned the nickname of Cunctator in reference to his hesitance to engage Hannibal directly in battle before 216 BCE. However, surely if we are making the same criticism of both sides, then the reason for this could be pretty obvious. In my opinion, after some military exchanges between Hannibal and the Romans in the previous year or two, Hannibal must have realised that Rome was heavily fortified and that he would probably only have one chance to succeed and that the best thing to do would be to create a power base in the south, possibly knowing that there may have been some anti-Roman sentiment that could be exploited. Hannibal may be able to take advantage of some of the much-needed agricultural land and local manpower to strengthen his army and make the invasion of Rome as mighty as possible. For the Romans, they would have been surprised by Hannibal's ability and their military forces depleted by Hannibal's victories over them. Knowing that Hannibal was not heading directly to Rome, the Romans surely would have felt it be more sensible to rebuild its military strength by summoning manpower from all corners of its vast territory and take a measured approach to engaging Hannibal, as the bold and brassy approach that the Romans had previously taken had not worked against the wily Hannibal. However, beware because that is only my opinion and there are many opinions depending on whose work you choose to read. For Hannibal, the choice of Cannae was not as random as it might seem. Occupation of this area somewhat denied the Romans the freedom of an important supply route. As we mentioned before, the two consuls, Varro and Paulus, had pulled their consular military forces and as per Roman tradition, they swapped overall command between them at regular intervals. The Romans marched to Cannae to engage Hannibal and his army once and for all, and it would be Varro who would have no interest in delaying things any longer. He would wait for his turn to command the combined army of Rome and notify the Carthaginians that he was here to do battle. Varro would have confidence and it's possible that with eight Roman military legions, possibly totalling 80,000 men or more, that he believed the weight of numbers would be too much for the Carthaginians. The Roman army would include loyal Etruscan allies, as well as local Samnites and Iapages. 
including over 6,000 cavalry. Hannibal's army was possibly less than 50,000 strong, but with a large number of cavalry and predominantly made up of men who had been acquired throughout the Carthaginian realm of influence, such as North Africa, Iberia and Gaul. The huge Roman army may have been packed in 50 to 70 ranks, uniformly spread widely across the flat and open-plained battlefield that the Romans would have preferred to limit the resourceful Hannibal from exploiting the trickiness of a more hazardous landscape as he had done so successfully in the past. The Carthaginian infantry would line up opposite the Roman forces, with the middle of Hannibal's lesser number pressing forward from the ranks in a bid to entice the Romans into an attack. The Battle of Cannae The Romans, confident with their large numbers and under the aggressive command of Varro, surged forwards with their infantry against the prominently positioned Carthaginian front line. As the Romans attacked the Carthaginians, the Carthaginians began to retreat and the Romans forced the Carthaginians deeper and deeper. Hannibal was banking on this being the outcome of the opening exchange. He could now start to execute his desperate plan to defend himself against this huge onslaught. To either side of the central units, Hannibal had deployed his Libyan veteran infantry and as the Roman frontline advanced, the Libyans would advance either side of the Romans. So now the Roman frontline had been drawn into a position of being attacked from the sides. As impressive as this move was, it was never going to win the battle alone. However, the one advantage that Hannibal did have over Varro was the number of cavalry, so it would be important for Hannibal to ensure that he took advantage of that statistic by engaging the Roman cavalry with his own. The Roman cavalry should have been responsible for defending the flanks of the infantry, so that the Carthaginians could not get behind Roman ranks. However, when the Carthaginian cavalry were able to nullify the Roman cavalry, the Carthaginian infantry were able to begin to surround the Roman army. With Varro in command of the Roman army, his fellow consul Paulus was in with the troops, and this was not a great place to be at this moment in time. The Roman cavalry had been chased from defending the infantry, and now the Libyans had managed to enclose the circle around the Romans. And what happened next was particularly grim. The Romans had to fight outwards from the middle of the circle, and the Carthaginians just made the circle tighter and tighter. It was impossible for the Romans to defend themselves. Somehow, Hannibal had managed to turn inferior numbers 
into a superior position. It was one of the most incredible moments in military history, but it was about to turn into one of the deadliest. The individual Romans began to huddle together to protect their backs, but the Carthaginians were slaughtering the Romans on the perimeter and the huddle was becoming smaller and smaller. Many Romans would have surely have been crushed in the middle of this pressurised huddle. They certainly would not have been able to engage with the enemy. So Hannibal had managed to render most of the Roman army as ineffective. If you had been impressed by Hannibal's ability to win at Trebia and Lake Trasimene, then this tactical victory was the best and it was quite unbelievable. There are accounts of Romans within this huddle seeing suicide as the only means by which to escape this hellacious situation that they found themselves in. The consul Paulus was unable to save himself being in the huddle with his men and the other consul Varro could only take the decision to flee the battlefield. By darkness, the Romans had been conclusively massacred and those who survived must have been left scratching their heads and wondering how on earth their vastly superior numbers had allowed themselves to be defeated in such a humiliating fashion on land which was their own imperial soil. Now as we go back even further in our history, we go from a battle that we definitely know took place to one that we're not always sure took place and we're talking about the Trojan Wars. Now these were written about in Homer's epics, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, but um, we often focus on the characters or the outcome, but what was the general overview of the Trojan War? Were we Actually, uh, we went and did this uh, four years ago, uh, just a brief overview of the Trojan War. Ancient works describe a great many characters and circumstances in and around the time of the Trojan War. So the Trojan War itself has been determined through the many works available. The most famous author for whom we regard as a scribe of the Trojan War, is Homer. However, we don't really know who Homer is, as he himself has become a legendary character. The existence of Homer is referenced in regard to the literary works called Iliad and Odyssey, which both discuss activity, contemporary and related to the Trojan War. The fact that this is the only evidence we have of Homer's existence has created something called the Homeric question, which basically is the question of whether he was even real. Some have suggested that his work is the work of many scribes or storytellers, and that there may well have never been a person called Homer. 
the other scriptures that talk of Mycenaean-dated Greek culture are called the Epic Cycle and refers to multiple works that are not attributed to the pen of Homer. These multiple works of the Epic Cycle are compared and counter-compared to the Homeric works in something described as Neo-Analysis. However, there is a general thread that can be followed and told as the story behind the Trojan War. Last week, I described the emergence of a Mycenaean settlement that we refer to today as Sparta, which is a considerably famous city-state of classical Greece, as we will surely discover in future podcasts. Homeric works refer to a king of Mycenaean Sparta called Menelaus. Menelaus was married to Helen, who is popularly known today as Helen of Troy. Helen was the most beautiful woman in the world, although I'm not sure if this was determined by some sort of global beauty pageant or not. Nonetheless, Helen was abducted by Prince Paris of Troy. Understandably, Menelaus was not pleased about the fact that his wife had been abducted and neither was his brother, who we know of already, Agamemnon. The king of Mycenae and Mycenae, quite nearby to his brother, Menelaus's kingdom at Sparta. The two kings took a Mycenaean army of troops across the Aegean Sea to Troy with the intent of going to war with the city over their Prince Paris's actions. Upon arriving at Troy, they besieged the city for ten years. However, despite ten years under siege, the Trojans were able to hold out long enough for the Mycenaeans to give up. The Mycenaeans decided to sail away in defeat. However, they did leave a large constructed wooden horse behind. The Trojans, being careful to ensure that the Mycenaeans had got back into their boats and left, decided to bring the wooden horse into their city as a trophy of their glorious success in resisting the siege. The Trojans would celebrate what they would see as their victory. That night, the wooden horse would reveal its true purpose. Hidden inside its wooden frame, Mycenaean warriors who had been waiting quietly and patiently for their opportunity to strike, did so. They would emerge from the horse and from within the city they would open the gates. Under the cover of night, the Mycenaean fleet had come back to Troy and disembarked before approaching the city through the open gates. The Mycenaeans would overwhelm the city of Troy. Trojan citizens were butchered, treasures were stolen and the city was burned to the ground. Troy had fallen. Now our final journey back into the history of the podcast is uh, five years ago when we were right in the very beginnings of what we were doing 
and we were describing the evolution of the first human species and part of that was describing their nature and one of the one th- one of the things that we described was how they constructed stone tools so we looked at the hard hammering technique and how how any of us could do that technique so let's go back and listen hard hammer percussion is a technique of prehistoric stone tool construction and this is how it works i want you to picture having a stone in each hand in your less dominant hand so if you are right-handed this would be your left hand you will be holding a core stone in your dominant hand you will have a hammer stone the hammer stone will naturally be a harder stone than the core stone the name of the game with hard hammer percussion is simply to strike the core stone with the hammer stone and knock off flakes from the core stone to create a sharp ridge to the remainder of the core stone you would then use the hammer stone to strike the remainder of the core stone to remove the sharp ridge as a flake of its own. You can then take this sharp ridged flake and utilize it as a tool. We believe that our ancestors were doing this at Olduvai Gorge 2.5 million years ago due to being able to ultimately radiometrically date the Olduvai Gorge. The time period seems to be in the transitional period between Australopithecines and Homo habilis. Should they find an animal carcass, which back then they would have likely scavenged from a kill made by another predator, then they could use these sharp stone flakes to carve the meat from the carcass and access the marrow within the bones of the carcass. You could even use them to scrape the flesh from the hides of these animals so that you could have a nice clean hide to keep you warm and sheltered. Now, I have watched some experts demonstrate this kind of stone napping. There has to be a considered thought process when constructing these blades. The core stone and the hammer stone would have had to have been carefully selected, otherwise the whole process would not work. The core stone does tend to benefit from some intricate working of the sharp ridges to make them more smooth and effective. I believe that in order to pass down this skill from generation to generation would take a decent level of intelligence and probably a basic level of communication at least. Some scientists will argue the case but there does exist a stone technology among modern monkeys that isn't quite on this level. Chimpanzees among other monkeys do use stones to break nuts open for example but there certainly isn't this kind of stone working at play so I think that the animal that created these tools was quite advanced in terms of intelligence and communication skills by comparison to modern monkeys. Before we move forward in the story it is worth briefly tackling the issue of whether hominins of this time period were hunters or scavengers. They were more likely to scavenge than hunt initially, but there would have certainly been an advance towards hunting and further away from scavenging the kills of other predators. A lot of the texts that I have read are fairly inconclusive on this subject, but 
One text that I read suggested that some of the bones found at Olduvai Gorge suggest that carnivore bite marks overlay the hominin carve marks, which suggests that the hominin had the carcass first. Certainly, there is not a lot of evidence for tools during the Alderwan period that seems specific to hunting, and the hominins at the time would certainly not have been able to move as quickly as their future hominin species. It is suggested that hominins could have dwelled in groups of up to 30 members, so cooperatively they may have been able to strategize to bring down a potential prey victim. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode, the History of the World podcast magazine, where we dipped back into the history of the podcast and uh, we reminded ourselves of some of the stories that we may have forgotten. Now, if you enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast, then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do so, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you qualify for rewards and gifts. Now, if you want to access bonus material and you want to listen to the podcast ad-free, you can do that. You can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. Just follow the link in the description for the podcast and uh, sign up to become a subscriber it's not expensive now if you want to get in touch with me at the podcast you can also do that just drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com listener messages and reviews so the reason why we do history of the world podcast magazine episodes is because i'm uh, I'm stalling for time, basically, while I'm writing this episode on historiography, which is, um, I've found it quite a tricky episode to write. So I'm, I'm, so I'm taking my time with it. And, uh, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to hash it up. So I want to, I want to make it right. So, um, that's, uh, that's the reason why we, I'm stalling for time. But anyway, it's, it's a good opportunity to go back and listen to some old stuff, uh, which I don't mind really. Um, I'm going to read some reviews out because I, I did, I think I neglected that last week if I remember rightly. Um, we did get some reviews, um, from somewhere that I don't normally look at, which is Podchaser. So people have been reviewing the podcast on Podchaser. Uh, Gal Zoltan 008 has put, I really like how he goes through all of history topic by topic, era by era. I also like the narration style. It is well organized, structured and easy to understand. And Kina 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 has uh has said out of the many history podcasts this has to be the best it has uh, at least one episode on any topic you can imagine and i love the narrator's accent that's um 
that's a considerable review that that's uh i'm not sure it's entirely accurate but I'll, it's incredible praise so uh thank you very much um on um apple podcasts we've got uh one from annika tierney from the usa who's put wonderful i discovered this podcast while going through a very difficult time in my life and it has been simultaneously educational comforting and inspiring thank you so much for all your hard work and dedication chris it it means more than you know yet i've discovered um podcasts really can um sort of sometimes fill a bit of a void you know it's um it's strange how there's almost a connection even though you know we don't meet each other face to face so it's uh it's it's lovely to know that it's a wonderful review kanguro 1976 has put uh thanks from sydney so this is from australia of course hello future chris by now i assume you're a rock star and get too many comments to possibly read them all out no chance I'm on volume two, episode 14, so if not, will be a while before I hear you read this. I listen to your podcast when commuting to work, along with a couple of others, e.g. History of Africa podcast. I've not listened to that one. I love your podcast. It's the best history podcast since Rob Monaco disappeared and Dan Carlin ran out of puff. Thank you for all your hard work, um, all of your work, and please keep it up. Cheers, Martin Sydney. Yeah, I do wonder what happened to Rob Monaco. I never ever found out what happened to him. Um, Samed227 from the USA has put Top Shelf History Podcast. I had discovered this podcast a few years um, and, and as a truck driver, it is the best thing. I study history in my free time, so it's great to have this resource to come back to. Very informative and unbiased information. And the host, Chris, is great. I assumed you were Australian at first, but now that I have listened through enough episodes, I know you're English. Cheers, keep it up. And I can't wait to catch up to the most recent episodes. Well, wonderful reviews. A real great pleasure for me to be able to read them out for you and... uh, such kind compliments um sometimes you know fills me with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of humble feeling really um to to hear such kind words from uh, people who listen in I, I never imagined that people would say such kind things so thank you very much indeed anyway that's it for this week i hope fingers crossed next week i can get this last special episode over to you um so look forward to that anyway uh what i will do however because i never made an uh i never made a debrief episode about the history of thailand episode so i'm gonna bung one of them into the mix this week so you can listen to that by subscribing at spotify or patreons can access it through the patreon feed so um if you want a little bit more uh bang for your buck then uh, by all means go along either to Spotify or to Patreon and you can listen to a bit more. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Sorry it was a little bit late this week. Um, I did have a very busy weekend and uh, I just uh, had to delay by a day. So hopefully that didn't upset too many people. But um, we've done delays before, haven't we? It's not the end of the world. So thank you for your patience. And uh, until next week, Be good.
the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.